episode of the SCTS Education Podcast. I'm Caroline Tulin, Cardiothoracic Registrar in the northwest of England. In this episode, we explore the world of risk assessment and surgical outcomes with cardiac surgeon, researcher, author, compiler of cryptic crosswords and Euroscore creator, Mr. Samer Nashef. We discuss the development of the Euroscore and its continuing evolution in response to both surgical practice, availability of data and increasingly sophisticated data analysis tools. We consider the influence it has had on cardiac surgery and how this has led to investigation of outcome assessment beyond mortality, with the ultimate aim to fully understand which patients are best served by surgical intervention. So let's get started. Thank you very much for joining me on the SCTS Education Podcast. So today I'm joined um, by Mr. Nashef, consultant cardiac surgeon from Papworth Hospital and also uh, one of the original uh, developers of the Euroscore, uh, amongst many other things. <laughs> but today uh, we want to talk a little bit about uh, the Euroscore itself, uh, but also um, about the wider picture in terms of looking at cardiac outcomes, how we assess outcomes, um, and what we might be looking to measure in the future as important outcomes for patients um, that obviously help guide us with our surgical decision making. Um, so one of the things I wanted to start with was actually a a quote from um, your book, The Naked Surgeon. Actually, I like that there are three kinds of doctor, those who can count and those who can't. Um, and that just made me smile. Um, I suppose a lot of this is all about counting. Um, and that's kind of where it starts. And one of the most important reasons why it's evolved that we do need to count things is because ultimately maybe our judgment gets impaired at times and gets clouded and we don't always make the right conclusions about what we should be doing for patients um, and actually tools like the Euroscore and other objective measurements um, help give us some insight into where maybe our judgment is affected and where perhaps our decision making isn't quite as in line with outcomes as we expect it to be. Um, so I, what do you think about that? I mean, I mean, that's one of the things that I suppose sort of started off the whole process of the Euroscore was sort of looking at, um, what the realities were in terms of patient survival. You're absolutely right. And you've touched on loads and loads of things, which are areas of interest of mine in that brief, short statement. But the, the primary reason for measuring the likelihood outcome of an operation by using a predictive risk model, such as Euroscore or other models, is that if we know what is the risk of an operation, then the doctor and the patient can be better informed when they make a decision as to whether to go ahead with the operation. And I think it is almost impossible for a patient to give properly informed consent if they don't really know what the risk of the operation is. You know, the whole point of informed consent is you say, well, you can have no operation or no treatment, or you can have this treatment or the other treatment. And the, this is the treatment's benefit, and this is the treatment's risk. And it makes, makes it much easier for a patient to decide. So if a patient is having an operation because they have angina or breathlessness or whatever, then you say to them, well, I can offer you an operation that will get rid of that, but the cost of that is a risk to your life of whatever, 1%, 1.5%. Do you think it is worth it? Now, the patient knows that they have angina and they know how much it troubles them. 
and they can compare that with the risk and decide whether they want to go ahead or not. So that's at, at its simplest. It's an essential for decision making. But it, it has a much larger role in terms of um, how it's looked at by hospitals and governments and healthcare purchasers and all the rest. In that once you have an idea of the predicted outcome for a group of patients, so you say you have hundred or several hundred patients and their average Euroscore is X, and you know what their actual outcomes are, their, how many of them survived and how many of them died, then you can compare the actual mortality to the predicted mortality, and that gives you an instant measure of the quality of the service. Mm. So if the actual mortality is significantly less than predicted, you've got a service that's doing really well. If it is significantly higher than predicted, you've got a service that's got problems and needs to be investigated. And this very simple use of risk modeling has resulted in a massive improvement in cardiac surgical outcomes. Um, cardiac surgical mortality after the introduction of Euroscore and its wide adoption by so many hospitals in the developed world dropped by more than half mm. purely because people were measuring. And the minute you measure, you find out the problems. And when you find out the problems, you fix the problems. And if you have no idea that you got problems, you know, they say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, if you don't even know it's broke, mm. then what incentive are you going to have to fix it? So it has had a huge impact on the quality of our service, as well as giving patients better information to make decisions, as well as being used for all sorts of things to do with research and with uh, um, with assessing the quality of care. Mm, absolutely. And I guess one of the difficulties as well is working out what exactly you're going to pick out to measure for these particular parameters, because ultimately there's a you know, huge volume of measurements that you could take, but you need to pick what's going to be most relevant um, and also what is going to be able to be collected as well because I think we all know how difficult it is to collect data it seems like a simple thing but it is not a simple thing (laughs) to collect data are you talking about the risk factor data that's collected exactly exactly yes and picking out which ones Mm. I mean we could produce risk models which are fantastically accurate by collecting every single item of clinical information about the patient it's It is doable. Mm -hmm. The trouble is, the more complicated you make the risk model, the less people are going to use it. Mm. And the more difficult it will be to collect the data to create it. So in the end, it ends up being that the choice of factors that go into a risk model is a compromise between what is feasible and what is um, sensible. Mm. So there are many people will say, you know, oh, I, I know of risk factors that are not in Euroscore, like liver function, for example, or like um, this, that, and the other. And they're absolutely right. We have missed out risk factors in Euroscore for usually for a combination of reasons. One is that the data are not available everywhere, and therefore we we cannot really use a model where hospitals say, "Well, you, the model is asking me what's the answer to this question, and I don't know. It's not in our records." So. That's one reason we have also excluded risk factors where they are measured in completely disparate and different ways between hospitals. I mean, we did try to look at the size of a recent infarct, for example, and you have no idea just how many different types of troponin measurements there are across the world so that the 
it was just number salad, so that didn't work. And then finally, there are some risk factors where you know that they have an impact, but if you introduce them, they destabilize the model. Mm -hmm. um, other more complicating things come into it, such as the way risk factors interact with each other. And that's something that we are not very well advanced in in Euroscore, but we hope that we will be with the next version. So all of that means that it ends up being a pragmatic compromise, what is picked out for measuring the risk. And I always say to people, Euroscore is just a tool. It tells you that if 100 patients with this combination of risk factors had an operation that I would expect, you know, so many percent of them to die. However, your decision, your clinical decision is a it is not replaced by the risk model. You've mm -hmm. got to use your brain. Mm -hmm. You know, if you see risk factors that are absolutely horrendous that are not in your score, you've got to bear that in, in mind. Mm -hmm. there, there were a couple of things that occurred to me just while you were talking about that. Um, one is the fact that not everything in the Euroscore has worked or been plain sailing with you saying that there are some things which have just made it number salad and some things that uh, have not been available or variable. And I think from an outside perspective, it looks like a very neatly sort of packaged um, score that, you know, all the work has gone into it. You can see um, see how you know, how well it, it seems to work and has been adopted. Um, but I think it's always useful for any sort of <laughs> aspiring investigators and uh, researchers to, to have that little insight that actually what we see in the tool that we're using at the end um, has been a concoction of some things that have, have been proven to work and, and made it into that role. But there's been a lot of work as well in um, excluding things that may not have always made the cut. I think it's always a useful thing to, to be aware of. Um, and secondly, is the fact it's it's called the Euroscore. And I guess from a UK perspective, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking of it um, in terms of our patient population. Uh, how how does it work elsewhere in Europe? Um, is it is it something that's as widely used there? I, it's not something I've got a really good idea of in terms of sort of the how it's actually actively being used in the rest of Europe, actually. As far as I know, it is used universally in mm -hmm. Europe. Now, how much it is used and how uh, much impact it has varies. Um, one of the things is that uh, in some countries, it's actually part of uh, medical litigation and compensation. If you go into a hospital and with a low Euroscore, you come out dead, you're automatically obliged by the government to compensate the patient regardless, no fault compensation. Mm -hmm. So it has even entered the law in certain countries. Mm -hmm. Now, how much people measure quality in Europe remains variable. And I think we in the UK, and I think some of the Scandinavian countries are, are way ahead. We are very thorough. We measure everything. It is treated somewhat lackadaisically in certain other countries, and it is still not seen as a priority in the eyes of some people in Europe. And outside Europe, that problem is even more so. So it's variable, but I think most people are slowly but surely getting the message that measuring outcomes is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, now, obviously, the Euroscore has gone through several iterations and at each of those, there's been some risk factors added or slightly altered um, or expanded on. Um, and not just that, but the, uh, I, as far as my understanding, this sort of mathematical modelling of the Euroscore itself has evolved over time as well. Um, for those of us who are a bit less mathematically minded, are you able to sort of go through what the changes are between the additive to the logistic to the yeah, Euroscore 2? 
Well, I think the first thing is that I would like to join you in the group of the, those who are less mathematically minded because my command of maths is not very good. But I do understand a little bit about the basics. We hire statisticians to do the, the, the serious maths work on Euroscore. When, when, when the first original additive Euroscore was introduced, nobody had computers. It was that long ago. I mean, you did not see a computer in every single corner of a hospital and in everyone's pocket. There were no smartphones. There were no, you know, everything was done on paper. And therefore, the additive version simply took the weights of the risk factors and you added them together. So if you have a risk factor that gave you 1% risk and you had another one that gave you 3% risk, you concluded that the risk for this patient was 4%. Mm-hmm. However, when you actually study risk factors, their interaction is a little bit more than additive. So, you know, the sum is greater than, than, than the parts. Mm. So if you have a, a patient who has got one bad risk factor in terms of very advanced age and another bad risk factor in terms of very poor left ventricular function, if you put those two together, the end result is actually greater than the simple sum. And we had a lot of people complaining um, when the additive Euroscore was produced was that it was grossly underestimating the risk in the highest risk patients. And they were right, of course. And it was slightly overestimating the risk in the lowest risk patients. So that's what comes from having an additive model. So over, over the years, computers became available and and more and more people were using them and they were everywhere in hospitals. And there was no need for something to be calculated with a pencil on the back of a fact packet. <laughs> you could use a computer now and it's a quick calculation. So we, the logistic Euroscore was not different from the additive Euroscore. It had exactly the same risk factors, exactly the same weights. But instead of adding, it used the logistic equation to calculate the risk by taking in, into consideration how the risk factors interact. Mm. So it is not a calculation that anyone can do in their heads, but with a very simple computer program, you can. So we published all of the beta coefficients, they're the bits relating to the weights of the risk factors. We published all of those for people to be able to make the calculator, and we made the calculator available online for download. Mm. And then um, people started to complain, oh dear, the the predicted risk in the lowest risk patient seems to have gone down. You know, it doesn't make me look good. Mm. But the predicted risk for the higher risk patients has gone up a lot, and I'm happy now that it actually genuinely reflects the uh, um, the, the the true risk of an operation in a high risk patient. The trouble is, as I alluded before, the introduction of risk modeling and the adoption by so many people of good quality outcome measurement meant that the results of cardiac surgery improved. They took a quantum leap afterwards. And this happened um, about two or three years after the introduction of the first model. And very quickly, results were much better than Euroscore was saying they, they were mm-hmm. or would be. And people started to write papers at first at trickle saying, oh, you know, we outperform Euroscore by so much. Um, they didn't think to ask why, but mm. that, uh, the trickle became a flood and clearly the model was completely out of calibration. So we did another data collection exercise, which was Euroscore 2, and we made a little bit of adjustment to the way certain risk factors were measured. Again, 
purely on the basis of the science and what has been published about weaknesses of the first model in terms of measuring renal function and other things. And that, um, and also one of the things that the first model was not good at is measuring the weight of the intervention. You, your operation was either cabbage or everything else. Mm -hmm. Whereas now it, it subdivides them into far more sensible groups of operations in terms of impact. So, mm -hmm. um, they're the things that we changed in Euroscore 2. And as far as I know, because there, there, there hasn't been a quantum improvement in outcomes after the introduction of Euroscore 2, because the risk and, and quality assurance systems were largely in place, mm -hmm. it is still roughly calibrated, Euroscore 2. It, is not, it has not gone way out of calibration with the speed that Euroscore 1 has. Mm -hmm. However, we mustn't, you know, be complacent because it will undoubtedly go out of calibration, which is why we're now working on Euroscore 3. Mm. And, yeah, and and I kind of I heard you talk about Euroscore three briefly. I think it was at the SCTS meeting, um, and uh, and you were you were talking about sort of that maybe the aim for the future being a kind of um, a continuous data collection program, so that calibration could be almost continuous and in line with the current yes. results and patients. Um, and you also mentioned frailty, which uh, which I thought was interesting, um, particularly given, I mean, that's definitely something I mean, we should all be much more aware of. But it, it, the, I suppose the TAVI protocols and the TAVI advent of TAVI has probably driven that really, because it's it's kind of yeah. been the thing that's differentiated in some ways, a surgical from a cardiology, well, not cardiology, but uh, an interventional cardiology patient in, in terms of aortic valve replacement. Um, I was wondering what sort of measures you're looking at for frailty. Um, we, we're not yet for Euroscore 3. Mm. We're beginning to, what we're going to do is We've nearly completed building the database, mm. and in a in a few months' time, we will be asking hospitals to begin to input data. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, frailty isn't there yet, mm -hmm. um, simply because nobody really has agreed on a universally available measure of frailty that's reliable and reasonably objective. Mm. We're running another study at the moment called Quacks, which has got a frailty measure, in it, yes. and we're mm. checking to see how well that works. But mm. uh, it, we're definitely keeping the option of introducing frailty into Euroscore in the future. Mm. But for the time being, we're beginning with the first look to make sure that is the calibration still okay or are we going to need to do something? Mm. One, of the, one of the things that um, you're absolutely right that we're going to collect data continuously and this is going to have um, a couple of massive advantages. Well, it's huge advantages for the centers who, that do not have to enter every individual patient they just send us the data and we will sort it out, you know. Mm -hmm. They send it electronically and we will we will crunch it and mm -hmm. input it and make sure it's it's all done. Mm -hmm. um, but from the point of view of the model, there are two huge advantages. The first one is that, you know, the first two models were created on databases of approximately 20,000 patients each. Mm -hmm. Now, that is pretty good to create a risk model, but it is not fantastic for certain rare conditions where there aren't enough patients in there. Mm -hmm. And obviously, if we start to collect data continuously, then we will we will go through that 20,000 number very, very quickly and hopefully be in the hundreds of thousands mm. um, in no time at all. And that will make the model much more precise and particularly for certain rare conditions. But the second thing is that the interaction between risk factors is really complex. 
Now, we know, for example, that age and renal function go together. And one of the reasons why um, um, renal function was detailed more in Eurosport 2 um, and made separate is that we know that that is part of the age impact. Mm. And we were doing a little bit of double counting in mm. Eurosport 1. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, you know, if you have, if you know, if you're old, your renal function is not great. So we don't want to count these twice. We need to take into account that an old person whose renal function is not great is just an old person. Mm. Um, so that that has been fixed in Euroscore 2. But there are so many other weird and wonderful interactions that we just have not had the numbers to study in detail. And when we have numbers over 100,000 and more, we will be able to study these in detail and hopefully produce a logistic model that will take account of all of these possible interactions and be much more accurate for several groups of patients who do not feature on the standard, you know, cabbage list. Mm-hmm. And in terms of, I mean, this is a, it's a huge amount of work. It's a huge amount of analysis. Um, where does all this take place? Which, which bit? Yeah, well, the like, who who does all the data collection and who does all the analysis? Because uh, I, I just thought, well, there must be a huge research program associated with this. Is it based at Patworth or is it based? I'm thinking, well, especially if it's European wide. Mm. Sadly, there isn't. Euroscore one was <laughs> done from my office on bits of paper yeah. to all the hospitals by post, yeah. um, and then analysed by a friendly statistician at the University of Bordeaux, mm. um, and. Really, it, that was it. And it was funded with a little bit of soft money from Valve companies. Mm-hmm. Euroscore 2 was funded a little bit by Packworth and a little bit from um, soft money from another Valve company. And that was done all from Packworth um, with one person working, essentially contacting all the hospitals and collecting the data. And then we had Linda Sharples, who's a great statistician, mm-hmm. do the statistics for it. Mm-hmm. Um, Euroscore 3 is also going to be done from Packworth. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, there's just two of us working on it, mm-hmm. me and the same person who, um, Christopher Smith, who uh, um, basically managed the Euroscore 2 project. Mm-hmm. And we will be looking for statistical help in due course. Mm-hmm. And we have some funding from the charity funds at Mapworth and nothing else. Okay. So it is not a huge organization. It's very difficult to get research funding for a risk model. It always falls between two stools. It mm-hmm. is not treatment. It is not whatever. Mm-hmm. It never fits in the, the bill. And I know, trust me, I have tried. <laughs> so it's always been run on a shoestring yeah. and goodwill. But one of the good things about it is that we've always had great goodwill from participating units. People mm. people want to help this project. They want to see it work. And at least we get the data without any grief. Yes. And we hope that that's going to continue. Yes. Well, it's a good to have a perspective on something that's so radically changed cardiac surgery outcomes. <laughs> For the better, um, that, that always useful to have a bit of perspective <laughs> on how it all comes about. Um, so you neatly mentioned there about the quality outcomes after cardiac surgery program, and actually, just before we go into that, I just wanted to mention the um, time until treatment equipoise um, project. That's that, from what I could see, kind of laid the groundwork a little bit for the quality of, of life after cardiac surgery because. It's really interesting because I had a look. I think you mentioned it in in the book, and and uh, and and it's all about uh, sort of the crossover point between survival curves of what happens with conservative management versus what happens when we do 
procedure. And the thing that I've sort of underlined there is it's all about survival curves. I mean, it's very, very useful because we know that a proportion of people aren't going to survive initially following their surgery in 30 days. That's what the Euroscore helps us to estimate or guide us. Um, but equally, it's always a difficult thing when you, you know, you're thinking in clinic, well, how long, what is the prognosis of this patient? And actually, we don't always, we don't know brilliantly. You know, we, we haven't got a great idea of that, particularly in elderly patients. Um, and from what I could see is that although the trimetal treatment equipoise talks about survival, what you're doing with the quality of life outcomes after cardiac surgery is actually looking on a, a wider basis, not just survival and comparative survival, but also quality of life measures, how long, how well people get after their surgery, how long it takes them to recover to any sort of quality of life, to getting home, to being able to do things either the way they did before or better, ideally. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, to come back to the toot, which really looked purely at survival, mortality from surgery versus mortality from a condition, this is when we operate on prognostic grounds on people who are feeling fine. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of important to know at what stage they're going to start to benefit from this operation. Because if you have a condition that could be a threat to you, and I offer you an operation tomorrow, and you're thinking about whether you're going to have it or not, then I can guarantee to you that you're more likely to be alive tomorrow if you don't have it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't have the operation, mm-hmm. right? Because the operation carries a risk of death, which mm-hmm. is much higher than the instantaneous risk of one day of having the condition. Mm-hmm. However, it's not just tomorrow you're interested in, it's in the future. So the curve for survival in, um, in patients contemplating procedures on prognostic grounds, if you plot the medical curve for survival and the surgical curve for survival, then at the beginning, the surgical group always take a hit because the operation will kill some people. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is that the medical group, there is an attrition rate because of the condition, whereas in the surgical group, if you have eliminated the risk, they should normally follow the life insurance tables. And at one point, they will cross. Mm-hmm. And at, nobody would want to reach that point with surgical treatment, by the way, because if you read you haven't reached equipoise yet, because if you reach that point with surgical treatment, the surgical group have lost more life years in the first, in the beginning of the of the survival curve. Mm-hmm. What you really want is for them to cross and then diverge so that the surgical group is doing better than the medical group. And when the areas between the curve are equal, that is when you have equipoise. And from that point onwards, the patient benefits. Mm-hmm. And the calculator, the times until treatment equipoise calculator will tell you exactly when that happens. And all you need is just two or three items of information. How old is the patient? What's the risk of surgery? What's the risk of the condition per year? Mm-hmm. And you just enter these three items and it'll give you the curves and will tell you when benefit begins. And that is something that patients really understand. Mm-hmm. So you can say to them, it's only a number, days, months, years, whatever. You say to them, if you have this operation, your survival will be better from a year from now or mm-hmm. two years from now or three months from now. Mm-hmm. And they, that they can understand and they can make a decision on that basis. And then it dawned on us, um, on Steve Large particularly, my colleague, that the same happens to the curve when you're looking at quality of life. Because mm-hmm. if you're thinking about having an operation to get rid of angina or breathlessness or whatever, then you measure your quality of life now, and if you have the operation tomorrow, your quality of life is guaranteed to be a hell of a lot worse. Mm-hmm. 
because you've had an operation, you're in hospital, you can't do anything, it hurts, and so on, right? Yeah. So the same sort of thing happens. And we realize that nobody has done any studies of quality on quality of life along those lines. Mm -hmm. So it is possible that there are patients who never achieve equipoise in quality of life. I mean, I can give you an example. Take a, I don't know, 85-year-old who's got angina, you operate on them, they haven't got angina, but they got chest pain and chest infection, and they're stuck in hospital and they're limping and they got all of these problems. And then just as they're beginning to recover to how they were before the operation, they have a stroke and die. Well, have we improved their quality of life? Have we heck? All mm -hmm. we've done is made the last couple of years worse. Mm -hmm. So the reason for doing the quacks investigation is because we want to find out who are these patients whom we are harming by surgery. Mm -hmm. Because if we identify them, we really should not operate on them. Mm -hmm. And we hope that we'll have an answer to all of this within a couple of years. Yeah, no, I think it's it's a really interesting and, uh, and very valuable study um, and and how many centers have been able to join that so far um, most of them I can't mm. remember the exact number um, we approached all of the centers and the majority of centers in the UK are participating there's a handful who haven't got their act together yet but mm -hmm. we're still pursuing them yeah the trouble is you need a lot of patience for that mm -hmm. and to 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 get the answers we need we would like about um, just over 8,000 patients to participate mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, we are up to about 1,200 now, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a massive hit because of COVID yeah. when hardly any cardiac surgery happened and all the research staff in hospitals were, you know, redeployed for, to COVID duties. They're now mm -hmm. slowly coming back and we're beginning to pick up on recruitment and mm -hmm. hopefully we'll be able to get the numbers. Yeah, no, it's excellent. I think, yeah, I've seen I've seen some of the recruitment for that in action. So that's, that's uh, hopefully, I wish you all the best excellent. in that. That's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm sure it will help inform what we're doing um, in the next decade, really. Uh, and also, I think most importantly, it's it will give. Uh, and I guess, I guess again, this again depends on your point of view, but it will inform us at least when it comes to the transcatheter procedures, which are undoubtedly going to be more prolific over the course of the next decade. Um, and if we can say, yes, we know we're definitely helping this group of patients, but actually this group, we don't do them any favours, we can be a little bit more, um, uh, I guess, uh, prescriptive about about who goes to a more interventional cardiology route or who goes for a transcatheter route versus who goes for a surgical route. And again, again, if you, you keep on tracking this sort of data, even when it comes to more minimally invasive procedures, again, you've got really good quality evidence of what the benefits of those techniques are, where at the moment, you know, you can argue the toss on certain factors. Um, it would be really useful to have, have uh, some more objective data so i think it's a it's an excellent idea and hopefully can expand rather than uh, even probably beyond the research research duration i suspect um so one thing i wanted to just touch on is um is all about sort of the nicor use of the Euroscore because i think this is something it's certainly something i've found confusing in the past as well um that we have a a score that is well calibrated 
And so we then submit these things to NICOR and there's some more calculations that take place and adjustment. And I just wondered if you have any uh, knowledge or insights to as to exactly what happens just to uh, some of the alterations that go on to the databases so that you get the number that kind of comes out of NICOR rather than the number that comes out of the US um, Court 2. I'm, I'm afraid I don't. I know mm-hmm. that certain operations are excluded by NICOR, so mm-hmm. they don't come into it. Mm-hmm. And I know that um, what NICOR was hoping to do is to produce a model which basically adjusts Euroscore to the actual outcomes produced in the UK now. Mm-hmm. Um, so how the calculation is done, I don't know. I suspect it's a very simple fudge factor, mm-hmm. but I really don't know. I'm not involved in that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I suggested that they really should just use Euroscore 2 for now, but they, mm-hmm. you know, they wanted to have their own input into it. It is largely based on Euroscore, but mm-hmm. with a little bit of fudging, and I'm not mm-hmm. quite sure exactly how it's done but it seems to produce pretty good outcomes mm. of micro data doesn't it yeah absolutely and um and i, I guess it's uh yeah I, I suppose your point being that um that it's it's rather than it being the euro score it's it's the uk <laughs> version of the yeah. euro score i guess is, is what they're trying to um what they're trying to produce which makes which makes sense um yes, uh, absolutely um uh yeah and i wondered how you felt about um you know sometimes outcome monitoring does come across for some criticism in terms of um, saying that there might be some sort of like, gaming by surgeons to try and improve scores or trying to uh, even prevent higher risk patients from going undergoing surgery. And, um, and obviously, I think the world of cardiac surgery has obviously had a sort of tumultuous, well, 20 years really with various uh, sort of scandals hitting the press and issues with outcomes obviously needing full addressing um, and leading to the developments of things like the Euroscore and um, and I guess that's created mixed feelings in terms of what it's like for an individual to be monitored and obviously we're moving towards unit monitoring at the moment um, from, a, from a kind of from being a junior through the course of the Euroscore being introduced it's always seemed like a useful thing to me um, but I can fully see that people might have felt a bit persecuted at the beginning with um, the fact that outcomes were being looked at in greater detail and um, and, and that they effectively may even feel criticised from the point of view of, of having outcomes monitored. I suppose that might be the crux of it, really. I'm, I'm not sure that it's monitoring the outcomes that's the problem. Mm. I think it's publishing them. Mm. I think there is... No doubt to my mind that we really must monitor our outcomes because otherwise, you know, we could be committing homicide on a large scale and mm-hmm. not aware of it. Mm-hmm. So it's very important that outcomes are monitored and there should be in every hospital at the very least a robust mechanism for dealing with any problem, any evidence of underperformance. And I think that's the absolute minimum that we should be doing. now. I suspect that most of the downsides that you allude to come not so much from monitoring, from proper peer-reviewed monitoring, action, correcting problems, dealing with issues. It comes from having these outcomes published Mm -hmm. and, you know, having people whose reputation gets damaged or having people who, I don't know, maybe their private practices gets affected. Mm -hmm. I I don't know what motivates people, but um, when you publish, then you begin to see certain perverse incentives come in 
And um, I've described two of them already for which I have data. And one of them is category shift, whereby you do an unnecessary and potentially slightly harmful something to a patient in order to shift them from a lower risk category to a higher risk category and make your low risk patients look better and make your high risk patients look better. So that, unfortunately, we know that there is a small minority of surgeons who would do that. Mm. And the second perverse incentive is making people so risk averse that they run away from operating on high risk patients, <laughs> even when they know in their heart of hearts that it is in the interests of the patient to have the operation. And that happens much more. That happens probably something like a third of the sample I surveyed said that they did that mm. because they were worried about their figures. So mm. we need to introduce measures to stop the benefits of transparency causing damage to patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So transparency is all well and good, but if we're going to be transparent, we have to make sure that the transparency itself isn't actually causing damage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, one of the things um, that we also introduced at Papworth is the concept of the staff chamber, where you take the very, very high risk patients and you no longer have them dealt with by one individual surgeon. You have them dealt with by the group, partly to ensure that the best decision is made, partly to ensure that the best individuals carry out the operation. Mm -hmm. Um, rather than one person doing it who may not be the best person to do it. We all know our skill mix. Mm -hmm. um, but also partly to say, we, the unit, take responsibility for this outcome. Mm -hmm. It is not an individual surgeon's outcome, it's a unit outcome. Mm -hmm. But now the society looks like it's going to move towards publication of unit outcomes rather than individual surgeon outcomes. And that might reduce some of the impact of these pitfalls of transparency. Mm -hmm. Um, we'll have to wait and see. I hope I hope it does. I'm not quite sure how the public and the press will react mm -hmm. when they find out that individual search and outcomes um, no longer being published. Because in a way, over the last decade or so, we've sort of let the cat out of the bag. It's very difficult to put it back in mm. without having a strong justifying argument for it. Mm. There is an argument for mm. it, but it needs to be articulated carefully. Absolutely. Um, and I think that... I suppose there'll always be the opportunity for patients to ask those questions of their surgeon. Um, and it, it's, yeah, I, I guess overall, all these things evolve, don't they? First of all, we measure the outcomes, then we find out where we need to improve. And then it's a continuous process of working out what is going to be best for patients, because ultimately that's, that's what we're all trying to achieve. Um, so I suppose, I think one of the things that, you know, we should be proud of, or maybe you should be proud of really, is that, um, is that cardiac surgery has managed to lead the way in this from, you know, difficult times. And, and actually that's, that's a standard to which other, not just surgical specialties, but any specialty, uh, well, I mean, basically all specialties should be looking at their outcomes for their, for their results of whether it's a medical ther therapy or whether it's a, a, uh, an interventional or surgical therapy, but, but certainly, um, showing that it's possible and showing that, that that process itself can improve outcomes, um, is, is got to be valuable. We'll just, uh, see where it, see where it leads, um, and what it, what the, uh, the next stage is. I suppose it will just continue to evolve, really, <laughs> which is what it should be doing anyway.
You're, you're absolutely mm. right. And I think cardiac surgeons as a whole worldwide have got a lot to be proud about in that it was their specialty that first recognized the importance of outcome monitoring right back from the days when all we did was measure survival, crude survival, up to now when we have sophisticated risk adjustment and looking at things like toot and quacks and everything else. Mm -hmm. So we recognize the importance of it. We f measured it. We found ways of risk stratifying it. And we were honest and transparent about it. Mm -hmm. And that is quite a lot for a specialty to be proud of. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that so many other specialties are now beginning to see the light mm -hmm. and, and follow in our footsteps is something that, uh, you know, we cardiac surgeons should be happy about. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for, for giving your time to come and speak to me on, on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Thank you once again to Mr. Samerna Chef for joining me on this podcast. I really look forward to seeing the results of the quality of life after cardiac surgery trial and how the Euroscore continues to develop. I've really hoped that you've enjoyed this podcast and thank you so much for listening. As always, please get in touch with any comments at sctseducationpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter using the handle at podcast underscore SCTS. See you next time. 